Listeners who like searching a piece of music for echoes of the time in which it was written are probably going to find Prokofiev's first violin concerto rather frustrating. There are works that seem to bear the imprint of their age like scars. In fact, the older Prokofiev was to compose just such a work in his Sixth Symphony. That was written after the trauma of the Second World War, but was plainly also a bitter protest at the continuing Stalinist nightmare. But you'd have to look very hard to find historical scars, or even bruises, on Prokofiev's first violin concerto, which was mostly composed in 1917. Nineteen seventeen was a particularly turbulent year in Russian history, as the war against Germany went from bad to worse for Prokofiev's homeland. Popular feeling rose against the Tsar Nicholas II. In February, there was a revolution. The Tsar was forced to abdicate, and a provisional government was set up. Then, in October, the great Bolshevik leader Lenin seized power. Soviet communism was born, and a very long and painful birth it turned out to be. The young Sergei Prokofiev had kept well out of the war. By re-enrolling as a student at the Petersburg Conservatory, he'd managed to avoid conscription. Now, in this pivotal year of 1917, he retreated to the country just outside Petersburg and busied himself with two works whose character seems to defy the spirit of those dark times, the first violin concerto and the aptly named Classical Symphony. <laughs> You can hardly blame a composer for wanting to keep his head down and concentrate on abstract musical matters at a time when his country is being torn apart. It could be that the general chaos of 1917 was one of the factors that caused Prokofiev to concentrate his mind so effectively in these works, because that's exactly what he did. The first violin concerto and the classical symphony are his first really successful mature works. Up till then, Prokofiev had built his reputation as a wicked young modernist whose chief delight seemed to be in mocking and upsetting the musical establishment of his day. When the 23-year-old Prokofiev had entered the Petersburg Rubinstein competition in 1914, playing his own first piano concerto, the 20 distinguished members of the jury were plunged into something close to open war. The progressives loved it, but for the old guard, led by the conservatory director Alexander Glazunov, it was a kick in the teeth. 
Here was a young man who could invoke the spirit of the grand romantic piano concerto and then raise two defiant fingers at it. Even the big tune at the beginning seemed to skewer itself deliberately on a series of inane repetitions, to the obvious delight of the soloist. In the long, exquisite melody that opens Prokofiev's first violin concerto, there isn't a hint of parody or malice in any form. It is, however, a remarkably original beginning, proclaiming at once that what we're to hear is not going to be a concerto on the traditional classical romantic model. Until well into the 19th century, concertos normally began with a substantial introductory passage for the orchestra alone. Even if the soloist is permitted a few words at the beginning, as in Beethoven's fourth and fifth piano concertos, he or she soon falls silent. The orchestra then takes over, presenting some of the leading themes. The soloist enters properly later on, and it's not till then that we feel the drama can really begin. But composers began to grow restless with this convention. Why not have the soloist lead the action from the start? Mendelssohn's famous violin concerto in E minor, which he composed in 1844. So the idea that you could begin a concerto with the soloist taking the melodic lead was well established by the time Prokofiev began sketching his first violin concerto in 1915. In fact, a decade earlier, even the arch-conservative Glazunov had done exactly that in his violin concerto. But those openings we've just heard do have one thing in common, and are typical concertos in that respect. They feel like the beginning of a dynamic, active movement, whether the pace is fast or only moderately fast. Prokofiev's violin concerto starts very differently. At first, what we hear is a timeless sound, a sound without any beat at all, a quiet tremolo on divided violas. Unlike Mendelssohn's violin concerto, which surges forward right from the start, Prokofiev's melody seems to float weightlessly. 
the effect is enhanced by the complete absence of any contribution from the bass instruments. The violin melody may drift back and forth like a feather on a warm breeze, but apart from some gently rocking figures on hushed flutes and clarinets, the orchestral background hardly seems to move at all. It's quite a while before any kind of bass line begins to emerge, and longer still before it begins to move with the violin. This whole opening seems to have been composed against the spirit of the virtuoso concerto. It's hard to imagine anything less theatrical, less likely to lead to spectacular instrumental fireworks. But in fact, this is an ingeniously crafted beginning, one that sows the seeds for all kinds of unexpected long-term developments. One element is crucial, though when we first hear it we hardly take it in. It's the little rising interval from A to D, a fourth that begins the violin's long melody. Having risen like that, the melody falls, and falls again, still more emphatically. That second falling figure is set to a swaying triplet rhythm, another important ingredient. The falling motion is now inverted. The melody rises. Before long, that rising pattern, with its characteristic swaying triplet rhythm,
becomes a repeated figure joined by the clarinets. It has a kind of rocking backwards and forwards motion, like a lullaby. Let's hear the whole of that first paragraph again. Listen for the way this long, exquisite melody seems to grow from the violin's first rising interval and that rocking, swaying rhythm. The violin now continues in evenly flowing triplets. I mentioned the lullaby-like quality in the rocking figure earlier on. Now that swaying movement seems to pervade the music, as though we were listening to a cradle song. And when the rocking figure returns, drawing in more instruments this time, the violin soars upwards, as though borne aloft on this new gentle current. Violin writing gathers momentum, though always keeping with the basic triplet rhythmic pattern. But then comes another rocking figure, stranger, harmonically more tense this time. Put that in context, and you'll hear how it seems to unsettle the rapt, cradle-song-like flow of the music, provoking an unexpected change.
This is the beginning of what in textbook terms you'd call the second theme, or second subject. Except the relationship between this and what's happened earlier is unlike anything in any concerto I know before this one. In romantic concertos, second themes usually offer a gentler, lyrical contrast to the tenser, more dynamic character of the first. But in this case, Prokofiev has spectacularly reversed the traditional roles. And the transition between the two is very striking. It comes as a surprise. We hardly seem ready for a lurch from that gentle swaying to the much faster rhythm. Yet it's also very cleverly engineered. Did you notice the way the violin's upward runs got slower as the music got faster? <laughs> rising figure in the cellos isn't quite as new as it seems. Its melodic contour, features the very interval, the rising fourth, that the violin played right at the start. And in the background, the flutes continue to sway backwards and forwards in thirds. The rocking motion of the first theme isn't completely forgotten. Those upward runs on the solo violin we heard a moment or two ago generate something else. The last one becomes a sweeping upward gesture, followed by a new theme full of similar rapid ornaments. This is much more typical of Prokofiev's abrasive modernist manner, full of athletic dancing leaps and spiky dissonances. point, Prokofiev puts a neat double bar line across the page, just as a classical composer would at the end of his exposition section, the part of the movement in which the main themes are introduced. But there's something rather naughty about Prokofiev's final cadence there. It isn't a neat rounding off, as in a classical exposition, like that of Prokofiev's classical symphony, for instance. There's something mischievously unfinal about that plonk on double basses and timpani. 
And the way Prokofiev begins his next section is a little disconcerting too, especially if you know how well-behaved classical and romantic concertos normally continue at this point. This is where, the textbooks tell us, the development section should begin, perhaps with a return of the first theme. And in a way, that's what Prokofiev does. Flute, clarinet and solo violin dwell on the concerto's opening rising forth. But all hints of the former sweet lyricism are gone. This is desiccated music, the opening theme stripped to its bare intervallic bones. At the end there, the soloist even plays the very same fourth, A.D., that began the long opening melody. But how different it sounds! Soaring lyrical grace has been replaced by a grotesque mechanical dance. All manner of motifs from earlier on are transformed in this crazy development section, but the transformation is often so drastic that you hardly recognise where it's come from. Take this wild passage at the climax. You may find it hard to believe but there's another echo of the opening violin melody there. It's at the top of the texture, on flute and oboe. Yes, it's really a decorated version of this. But the ear is much more likely to be caught by that furious balalaika-ish strumming sound on the solo violin, chords plucked across the strings, alternately down, then up. Prokofiev cunningly heightens the resemblance to the sound of the Russian balalaika by adding a rippling figure in the harp on the same notes as the violin's chords. Take almost any bar from this development section and you'll find something that derives from either the first or the second themes of this movement. But Prokofiev seems to take a perverse delight in pulling the themes apart or redressing them so extravagantly that you might think everything was completely new.
You can imagine Prokofiev contemplating the trap he might be setting for those reactionary Petersburg conservatory teachers and their allies in the musical press. Where's all this new material coming from? They cry in righteous horror. But it isn't new, says the annoyingly brilliant young composer. Just look a little closer. But the surprises Prokofiev has sprung so far are nothing compared to what follows. This motoric, hard-edged development section begins to run out of steam. The texture thins out until only the violin is left, with more of those skeletal sounds from the beginning of the development. This too tails off into nothing. Then, viola tremolos, the mysterious timeless sound from the beginning of the concerto, rise like mist over water. And through a shimmering filigree of harp and violin figures, something very familiar returns. Rest at last. The opening melody has returned, and it brings the first movement finally to a close. 
Technically, that's the recapitulation, where we might normally expect to return again to the music we heard at the start. But it's one of the strangest recapitulations in the concerto repertoire. After that grotesque, spiky development section, the unclouded ethereal loveliness of this return is disconcerting, almost eerie. It's as though we were witnessing not the conventional return of a theme, but the appearance of a ghost. Prokofiev had a great love of Russian fairy tales. He even had a try at writing a few himself. He loved the magic elements, so often enticing but also disturbing, rather like the witch's cottage of sweets in the German folk tale of Hansel and Gretel. This is one of several passages in his music that often seems to me to breathe that same mixture of magical allure with a faint sense of unease. However you experience it emotionally, there's no denying the magical quality of the orchestration there, especially at the end. Here are some of the key ingredients. There's that rising figure, like a wisp of smoke. The flute rises in a series of little pirouettes, while the clarinet slides up lazily underneath. At the same time, the violin executes a series of ascending turns. while the harp traces the basic outline. Add sustained high notes and tremolos on strings, and the spell is complete, with the flute adding a kind of vaporous after-echo. The apparition has vanished. Prokofiev begins the second movement, the scherzo, with a kind of fusion of the two sound worlds of the first movement. The orchestration is delicate and exotic. Flute, second violins and violas play this pattering, repeated figure. To which harp and first violin harmonics add tiny flashes of light. The result recalls something of the strange magic of the ending of the first movement, but with the mechanical repetitions we heard in the development section. Let's hear the beginning of the scherzo now.
The solo violin part here is ferociously difficult. The young Prokofiev clearly understood the violin pretty thoroughly. At one point, he asked the soloist to bow one set of notes at the same time as plucking others with his left hand. If you don't play the violin, that probably sounds near to impossible, but it works. Later on, he writes some pretty tortuous-looking quick dotted rhythms, bouncing backwards and forwards across the strings. It sounds demanding enough at half speed. At the speed Prokofiev indicates it, it becomes almost like a musical tongue twister. You probably noticed that Prokofiev added some new sounds to his orchestra in that passage. Up till now, it's been a fairly small classical orchestra, two of each woodwind, horns, timpani and strings, plus a harp. But now, the timpani have been joined by side drum and tambourine. Now comes a passage that calls for a larger orchestra, including trumpets, and another surprising deep bass voice. It comes after some extraordinary whiplash high glissandos from the solo violin. Did you notice that new instrumental sound bellowing out from the bass? It's a tuba, as if the brilliant diabolical dance music had suddenly been invaded by a cavorting hippopotamus. The scherzo ends with a fabulous example of one of Prokofiev's composite sounds. As so often in this movement, it's the soloist who leads, with scintillating high harmonics. Violins, half of them muted, and these scurrying sounds. There are trills from violas. And more machine-like repetitions from cellos and basses. The woodwind add more repeating, interlocking details. There are rippling figures from the harp. And trills on a piccolo. It all adds up to this teeming, sparkling, rustling sound, alive on so many levels at once, until, with a sweeping gesture, Prokofiev suddenly brings it all to an abrupt halt. In the finale of the first violin concerto, Prokofiev departs from tradition once again. 
Concerto finales are normally brilliant virtuoso affairs. The principle seems to be keep your best fireworks for the end. This, however, sounds quite tame after the dazzling display of the scherzo. There's a hint of something familiar in that passage, in the bassoon figure near the start. The bassoon line is dominated by one interval, a falling fourth. It's the same fertile interval with which the concerto began, only upside down. A little later, the excitement mounts and a new figure appears. theme is also dominated by the interval of a fourth. More and more fourths begin to appear in the music, as in this magical hushed passage. Listen out for the piccolo and then the oboe.
that bass figure from the beginning of the movement is now inverted, so that the fourths rise just as they did at the beginning of the concerto. Prokofiev is subtly preparing us for his final masterstroke, the return of that long, exquisite melody from the beginning of the concerto. That's why when the melody does return in full, embellished with trills by the soloist, it comes as no surprise. We've been prepared for it so expertly. The surprise is the way Prokofiev manages to combine a melody that's basically in triplets. with a theme in four beats to the bar. For a while, the two different pulses coexist, side by side, until the triplet pulse wins in perhaps the most ravishingly magical passage in the whole concerto. With the return of the theme from the first movement, the circle is completed. Has anything happened at all? Has the lovely vision been changed in any significant way? This is perhaps Prokofiev's most daring stroke of all. He completely subverts the traditions of concerto form. The piece doesn't end with the soloist dazzling us in a final virtuosic display. But by this last stroke of genius, Prokofiev makes it possible for us to admire the virtuosity of the composer instead. <laughs> 